All right, well, thank you, worship team, for being here with us today. I am Ben Stevenson. I'm the children's pastor here at Double Oak. I get to, to hang out with this uh, party every week. And, and just to help me feel more at home before I, I, I get started with what's going on the rest of the day, I just want to say, does, does anybody in the room need to go potty before we... Ke- <laughs> We're good? I'm going to trust that to y'all. Y'all got to let me know, okay, if we need to stop. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be jumping in, uh, continuing our, our Advent series, talking about feasts. But before we do that, we like to take a moment and pray together. Uh, as, as a body of Christ, as, as his people, we believe that prayer is powerful, that it's meaningful. And so we take this time every week to focus together on one particular thing. This week, uh, I want to announce to you something I hope you got to hear about earlier uh, it's a family workshop that we've decided to put together. Uh, it's called The Authentic Family, Ready for Real Conversation About Hurt and Anxiety. Through the course of the beginning of this year, we walked through a couple of instances of suicide in our, in our community. And it was a really heavy time. It was a couple of kids, a, a mom. It was, it was a hard time for us to walk through. And there were a lot of parents that I talked to, a lot of families who were saying, how do I talk to my kids about this? How do I help them process this hurt for friends that they lost in their school? Or how do, I, how do I make myself ready for a conversation that makes sure that my kid doesn't end up in the same place? And we just don't feel prepared. You don't know how to talk about these things. They're too heavy. They're scary. And so what we want to do is we want to take this time. It's on February 10th at 9 o'clock. It's a Saturday morning. Take a few hours to come and hear from some uh, licensed counselors, believers here in our community who will help us understand good conversations to have. That one will help their, our kids process if there is some sort of traumatic event. How do I help my kid understand difficulty and pain and death and loss? But perhaps more important, how do I communicate my child's identity in the gospel? Make sure that they know who they are because of Jesus Christ. And then keep tabs on their health as we walk through our our time with them. I'm called to protect this precious child. How can I protect them? How can I help them and communicate clearly on a regular basis? So if this is something that's a part of your life, whether you have kids, grandkids, whether you are walking alongside parents, uh, we want you to come and be a part of this. So go to docc.org workshop and you can register for that. Um, it's going to be a great time. And I want us to take a few minutes before we get started today to pray and ask God to prepare us as a church, as a community, to be a blessing to our families, to be a blessing to Chelsea. It When moments of trauma come, we want to be there to shine Jesus' light. So let's pray together that God would prepare us to do that. God, it's so hard to know what to say when somebody's in pain. It's so hard to know when something so difficult and so unusual and unexpected as a child's death happens. How do you you say anything? The only thing we know to offer God is you. You are the healer. You are the comforter. And so we pray that uh, the families who get to be a part of this workshop would be prepared, that they would hear your word, that they would hear your truth proclaimed in such a way that when they go to talk to their children or their family or their friends, that they would be an extension of your comfort and your love and your healing in those broken places. We expect for you to move through us because you've promised that you will. So prepare us. Help us to be ready to be your hands and feet among our brothers and sisters. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I am, I am very glad to be in here with you guys today. Uh, I, I, was, uh, I thought I was going to be talking about what we talked about last week when we talked about hope. I'm a big Old Testament man. I love talking about Isaiah, but Advent didn't work out that way. The calendar just didn't happen that way. So I'm get, I get to be here today to talk to you about peace. And uh, last week that we talked about hope is something that sets us up for what's coming. Jesus' kingdom is returning. We're waiting for that day. And when we talk about hope at Christmas time, we also talk about the hope of the, the thousands and millions who came before Jesus, who are looking forward and waiting expectantly for this Savior to come. And he shows up in the form of a baby. And it's totally unexpected. We don't recognize it, and, and we end up killing him. But he comes back to life, and he says, I'm coming again. I'm bringing a kingdom of perfection and peace, and it will come. But you have to wait. Today we're continuing. We're talking about peace. And just like with that hope, we'd all like to think we, it's something we experience in a perfect way. It's something that's happening in our lives right now. But I think the reality is a little different, right? All of us carry around a lot of anxiety. Your anxiety may be found in uh, what you think about your family or your work. Uh, your anxiety may be, what's, what's going to happen in the future? Do we have enough saved for retirement? Are my kids making good enough grades? Are they going to go to the college I want them to go to? Are, is, our, is our house, is the foundation going to fall apart or are the pipes going to burst? Are we going to have to pay some big bill that I didn't expect? There's a lot of anxiety there. And then we look into the culture and we watch the news and we look at social media and does anybody find peace in those places? It's only arguments. It's only fight. It's only war. And then we think about our spiritual walk, and we look inward, and we say, I really would like to feel that I have peace with God. I know he loves me. Shouldn't that make me feel peaceful about how I relate to him? But I think the truth is that so often we're like somebody who gets a gift, a fancy piece of tech, and we just don't know how to use it. We don't know how to make, how to get at the peace that God is offering us. I think about uh, a show that I love called The Office. Uh, there's a character on the show named Dwight, and he's a nerd and a, a weird guy. Uh, and one of the Christmas episodes, uh, Dwight is getting a Christmas gift. But he gets it over the course of like two months. A piece at a time comes to him in the mail. And it's little trinkets of metal. And he's gotten, the first note said, all these pieces fit together to create one gift. And he's got to figure out how the pieces fit together to make the gift. Or kind of a cool idea. But because Dwight is a strange guy, he just expects that what he's being mailed, piece by piece, is a gun. And so each little piece of metal he tries to stick together, and it's not quite fitting the way he expects. And over time, he just... He starts using duct tape and rubber bands, and, and eventually he's got this, like, this gun-shaped thing that is clearly not a gun. Like, it doesn't work at all. It doesn't look like that's how the pieces fit together, but he's certain. This is a gun. This is my gift, and I'm pumped about it. And then he finds out the person sitting in the gift says, no, bud, it's just a nutcracker. You're supposed to, the pieces fit, and you put the nut in here and crank and nutcracker. Oh, you see, we think the same way about peace. I think that God has offered me one particular thing, and that it should happen in my life in a particular way, and that I should feel it in a particular way. And I force, and I use rubber band and tape, and I get all bent out of shape, and I'm angry at God when it doesn't work, but I'm certain 
that this is how peace works. And the reality is, so many of us couldn't be further from truth when it comes to peace with God. So today we're going to be opening up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look in the index if you need to. Uh, This is a great passage where Paul is going to explain to us, step by step, what peace actually means as an offer from God. What does it look like? How do I feel it? How do I experience it? How do I access it? All these things that seem so foreign to us but are so critical. And here's the thing. This whole sermon series that we started back, I think, in the summer, We talked about who we are in relationship to God, who we are in relationship to one another, and especially during this time, we're talking about who we are to the world. I want you to take a second and think. If we could actually get the kind of peace that we imagine, that we think God is offering us, if that made an an actual lived effect in our life on a daily basis, do you think the world out there would be attracted to that? Do you think there's anybody out there who says, gosh, I'm so tired of this fight. Is there peace anywhere? If we could show it, if we could live it and feel it the way that God promises, we would have a gift the world would run to. So we're going to take this time, we're going to unfold this starting in verse 16. And let's see what God actually intends when he offers us peace in our lives. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. God, your word changes us. You promised to make us a new creation. So now today as we wait for you to speak, we ask that you would transform our hearts and give us peace. In your name we pray, amen. So as we look at this passage, these short couple of verses, I want us to see today four movements that Paul is going to walk us through that are going to take us from the death, the chaos, the conflict that we regularly experience and move us to peace. Not in a way that we think it's supposed to or how we think it should, but the way that God intends. And the first movement shows up conveniently in the first verse that we're going to read about. In verse 16, he says, uh, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. This verse talks about perhaps one of the hardest things God asks of us. It's a 180 degree shift in our perspective from regarding the world according to flesh to regarding it according to his purposes. This is very strange to us. And, and when we hear this, we, we think Paul's talking about, you know, if you, if you just read it to a, a person who'd never read their Bible before, 
And it said, we don't regard it according to the flesh. Well, they think, so am I supposed to just walk around with my eyes closed? Is it a metaphor for sticking my head in the sand and pretending I don't have any problems? Is that how I have peace? Well, Paul uses this flesh metaphor in a, all over his letters. And he's not talking about my body. Because this, this is a good gift from God. The skin and bone, these eyes. This flesh is a good gift. But when Paul talks about the flesh, he's actually talking about the part of us, the innate part, the deep part inside of us that stands in opposition to who God is and who he's made us to be. You see it famously in, in Romans chapter 7. Take a look up here at Romans chapter 7. If it's up there, Miss Amber. There we are. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, it says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He says there's this part of us, and it seems to act independently of my mind that says, whatever God says, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to go my own way. And we see that pretty blatantly. I mean, all of us, I think, understand what sin is as a concept. I know that it's doing the wrong thing. And I confess I'm a sinner. I do the wrong thing. But when we think about it and in regards to peace, he's not just talking about, are you obedient when I ask you not to murder somebody? Or do you honor your father and mother? What we talk about here is, do I think I know the right way for me to have peace? Do I know what's right for me? so that I can have comfort and stability, so that my life will unfold in the way that I think that it should. Because that's the only way for me to have peace. Deep inside us, we think God is good, but I'm going to have to be better to make this thing stay on the tracks. And when that happens, I'm going to view the world in light of my preferences I'm going to need my teams to win. I'm going to need my politicians to win elections. I'm going to need my laws to get passed. I'm going to need uh, people to get out of my way when I'm driving down Highway 280 and trying to get some Waldo's chicken. It's just a reality. I think that the world should do what I think it should. And that's according to my flesh. When my expectations aren't met, I get angry. I get worried. I get hurt. Because I'm worried about what I think is right. I regard it according to my flesh. The most famous example of this comes from Genesis chapter 3. I hope you know it. God creates the whole world. Creates all the universe, all the things in it. Creates man and woman. And as he goes along, he calls certain things good and certain things not good. And one of the main points of the narrative is, is that God has power to create. Out of nothing, God created everything. But another point that we miss a lot of times is, as we go along, we should see that God has the power to define good and evil. He's putting together the whole system. The trees work this way. The bees, the, the fish, all these things work this way. Good and evil works this way. 
And for the first part of the Bible, that's how it works. God defines what's good and what's evil. But we hopefully know the story. Adam and Eve decide what God had decided is not good enough. God said that fruit is not good for me to eat. And then somebody else comes along and says, no, 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 no. It'll make you like God. It's something extra good that he's trying to hold back from you. You need to take it. And Eve sees the fruit and sees that it's good for eating and takes it and eat it. And Adam does the same thing. And the problem is not that they ate an apple instead of a pear. The problem is that they said, God said this was not good. I don't care. I think it is. And don't we do just the same thing? I say, I don't care what anyone thinks. I need to have that job. My kid should be making these grades in school. My wife ought to respond to me as often as I want her to. So many things that I say, I've got to have it my way. And maybe I'm not shaking my fist at God while I say it physically, but deep in my heart, my flesh says, nope, not interested in your definition, my definition. What we're doing is setting ourselves at war with God. It's what Adam and Eve did. It's what we're doing. And the problem is, it never works. When I demand my way, when I'm trying to get down 280 and somebody gets in my way and I get angry, does it make them get out of my way? No. I'm just more angry. I'm just more anxious. And because I'm more anxious, then I'm angry at that person even more. I'm probably angry at my kids because I shouted because I was angry and then they started crying and now it's louder in my car. And I'm angry at God. Because why isn't this working out the way that I think it should? How could this plan be good if it's not working the way that I think it should? So I work harder. I drive faster. I, I, I try to make the right moves and say the right things to my boss so that I get the promotion. I try to manipulate my wife. I work so hard to make the world fit my expectations. And all I find is more death and destruction and conflict. Not a scrap more peace. Verse 16 says, we can't do this anymore. We've got to put that to death If we're the people of Christ, if we're following him, that flesh has to go away. And we have to do something entirely against our instincts. Namely, surrender. You saw it before, the first movement is just surrender. If I'm at war, if I think I've got to have my way, I've got to quit. I've got to put that down. Adam and Eve picked up this prerogative that says, I get to define good and evil for me. I got to say no. Because when I do that, I find death. When I follow God, I find life. Surrender is how we take the first step. Surrender is saying, I don't need to define these things for myself. And instead of power, instead of control over myself, I'm going to take dependence, which is not a word that we like. I'm going to depend on God. Instead of controlling things myself. And it's going to make us very uncomfortable. We feel it most when life goes off script. If I'm depending on God and the day goes fine, then great. But if I'm depending on God and it turns out the doctor says cancer, well, that's a problem. 
If I'm depending on God and I don't get the promotion, or my kid makes some big life-altering mistake, that's not okay. That feels awful. It doesn't feel like peace. And we look at God and we say, I'm trying to depend, but how can this be a good plan if it doesn't get me where I thought we were going? How can this be right if it hurts? And again, I have to say, it's not up to me. I don't get to decide where's the right place to end up. I don't get to decide that I shouldn't have to hurt. This is the calculus of my flesh. I have to put it to death if I want to find peace. To help us get our heads around this really foreign concept, as we go today, I want us to be looking at uh, the life of Abraham. Because God makes, in, back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes the exact same offer of peace to Abraham that he makes to you and me. And we see a really concrete, lived example of somebody finding peace in just the way that Paul describes. Take a look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What's really interesting about this is Abraham doesn't have a lot of explained relationship with God. He may know who this God is. He may worship God. But it's not like there's been a lot of give and take as far as what the Bible tells us about. God's first call to Abram, his first command says, I want to give you peace. I want to make a relationship with you. Here's what I need. Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. Leave behind familiarity, comfort, stability. Imagine that, and this may be true for you, your family owns kind of a plot of land out in Chelsea or, or farther out towards, uh, towards the east. Uh, if things don't work out at like a job in, in downtown Birmingham, you can go farm in, in, in Chelsea. You can be fine. You got a way to make it on your own. Same was true for Abraham. He had a home. He had land. He had prospects. And God says, first step towards peace, drop it. Leave it behind. Abram, these things that you think are bringing you comfort, are bringing you power, I want you to leave them and follow me. And this is the scarier place. He says, leave all those things and go to the land that I will show you. God says, you can't physically see me, but you're going to follow me. Is that good? Also, we're going to a place, not going to tell you where. Just come on. Also, not going to tell you if it's a long journey, short journey. Not going to tell you if there's deserts, oceans, mountains, wolves, robbers, nothing in between. We're just going. You okay? Come on. Have peace, Abraham. Uh, we're chuckling because we know, no, that's not an exciting offer to me, God. Thank you. I like this, st- this stability I've got right here. But praise God, Abraham does what God asks of him. He steps out. He drops the control that he had, and he says, I'm going to trust this God. I'm going to follow him by faith into the unknown because Abraham recognized what we need to. Even if we had all that stuff going our way, even if I had money and land and control, I still can't manufacture my own peace. Ask Elon Musk. Ask Tom Brady. Day after he'd won a Super Bowl, he always said, I'm ready to win the next one. Because when we're at the peak of whatever our profession is, it turns out it doesn't last. And the best that we have will not sustain us. 
I can't be rich enough, smart enough, hardworking enough to maintain peace on my own. So I have to depend on the only one who can, and that is our God. I have to surrender entirely all of my control. That sounds hard, that sounds depressing, but this is not nihilism. This is not a theory of life that ends in the pointlessness of all earthly things or everything that you see or want is evil. This is not what that's about. Instead, Jesus says something different. Take a look at, at Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 24. He said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Abraham found out that he lost everything. He, he left behind family and security and wealth. But because he lost his life, because he left behind all that control and that earthly power, there was room for something else to grow. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take a look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Second movement towards peace after surrender is to take on a new identity. You've been given a gift because you were willing to drop that old thing, that old rag that was valueless. You now have the freedom to take hold of what God is offering to you. You could never take it for yourself, but God says, here it is, free, if you'll just grab on. New life. New creation. God erases the old, wipes it away so that something new can grow in our lives. Our memory verse uh, of the month, last month in kids' ministry, was uh, from 1 John 1.9. It says, if, we're faithful, or if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, which is good. But the really cool part's the second part, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That old person isn't just forgiven, but still sitting there on the ground like something I should be ashamed of. It's wiped away. It's cleansed. It's gone. That treason that I was guilty of, it's as if somebody else did it. And instead, I am a cherished son of the king. I am given something brand new. Same thing was true for Abraham. And during their journey, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham. And it's not about a new set of letters that points out to this guy. Instead, God's saying, I'm going to change your destiny. I'm going to change your lived experience so that you can receive my goodness. This is what's at offer to us. God wants to make you something completely different, something completely new. And it's not just like a, a middling gift. This is perfection. This is life. Now, the trick was with Abraham... He had to take that step. He had to leave behind his father's land. And every day, God asked him for a new step of faith. At any moment, he could have turned around and gone back home. But every moment was an opportunity for Abraham to say, no, again, I trust you. I don't have to control. He made some mistakes. Every now and then he said, no, I need my wife to pretend she's my sister so that they won't kill me. And he tried to take control again, but it just caused hurt and pain. 
And instead, he would release again, and God would pour new blessing into his life and keep leading him towards this promised gift. God intends for you to have the same experience. Each day is a new opportunity to step by faith forward into who he's creating you to be. This new creation is made up of step after step by faith. And we see it all over Paul's writings, all over 2 Corinthians 5. Take a look at verse 9. It says, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. In verse 15, he says, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Over in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one more, for good measure, Titus chapter 2 says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. The new creation is this. It's pursuit of good works. It's pursuit of the righteousness that he intends for you. Now, somebody who's unfamiliar with peace may say, that sounds an awful lot like I need to work really hard so that God will forget how bad I used to be and cover it over. But for that to be true, we would have had to skip over the first step entirely. Because remember, I surrendered the fight. The war is over. It is erased from the history books. It never happened. I am a cherished son of the king. I don't have to work to earn his love. So what's up with all the works? Why do I have to try to find righteousness? Why do I need to grow in that direction? Paul shows us what he means back in 2 Corinthians. Take a look at this. The love of Christ controls us. Because I love him. Because I was broken. I was a mess. I was hurting my family. I was fighting a war against the God of all creation. He said, put it down, put it away. I love you too much. Because of that love, I want to give it back to him. I want to follow him. I, I, I trust him more than I trust me for sure. I hope you feel the same way about your marriage. Uh, Cameron and I met in 2005, when I was 16 and she was 17. So she's for sure got all the worst of who Ben Stevenson is. And I hope that over the course of the years, she would say that I've grown. I hope that she would say I'm more patient, more kind, more willing to communicate. And I don't try to grow in those things because I think that Cameron is a tyrant and she beats me when we're at home. I don't do that because she's watching over my shoulder and I'm afraid she's going to leave me so that all I have left is my shame. I do it because I love her, because she's wonderful, and she loves me. So I make choices to protect our relationship. I choose things that are good for the long run of who we are. Even though there are things that might come more naturally, even though there are things that might feel better in the moment, 
I'm going to try and choose things that are right for us because she's my wife and she deserves it. Shouldn't the same thing be true for God? He's my king. He saved me, pulled me out of the pit, restored me to be his son. What a great gift. Shouldn't I return something? Shouldn't I give back? Shouldn't it flow out of me? How could it be a different response? His love is so great. Of course it comes back out. Check it out. When I follow God, this third movement just starts to happen. It, 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 it overflows in my life in unmatched abundance. The third movement, God's blessing. When I pattern my life after his design, when I'm obedient, out of love, when I live according to the law of love, what I find is abundance. Take a look at chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We've got to move quickly. We know that if the tent that our, is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The blessing of God, the ultimate one, the final one, the top at the pile, is an eternal life, perfected in the presence of God, with Him at every step, forever. That gift outshines the best of what I can imagine Him giving me in the next 50 or 60 years that I'm here on the earth. It's so much more real, so more lasting. Imagine a hope that never fades. Peace, love, no imperfection, no interruptions, no hiccups for eternity. What a gift. It's so different from what my expectations, my power can give to me. And what's amazing is, before I had peace with God, I might have looked at his offer and I said, oh, he's going to replace this good stuff that I've got with maybe something that's a little better. Abraham's looking around at the land that his father has and the, the farm, and he's saying, it's a pretty good farm, God. Are you sure there's a better one over there? Okay, well, we'll go figure it out. But it turns out that God's not even offering him something in the same category. Check out verse 4 again. Check out verse 4. It says, while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed. What is mortal may be swallowed up by life. It's not that what I have now is okay, and what God's going to give me is a little better. What I have now, the best, the top of my pile, is darkness, emptiness, death. It's a burden. It's weighing me down, causing me to groan. But I thought it was my best. And God says, you're not in the battle with pretty good armor and I've got to give you better. You're in the battle naked. you got no hope. 
take mine. Take a look at the offer. This is beyond our wildest imaginations, and it is for us, and it is for today. I was empty. Proverbs calls it vanity, mist. It's going away. Whatever I have now, if I build my peace on it, it's going to be fickle. It's going to break. But Jesus offers us something more. Something that I can feel today. Something that when I leave this room and I go back out and i got to get my kids fed and put them down for a nap and we got events tonight and it's going to be hectic and, and Christmas is coming and the trips and there's a lot. Am I going to feel this peace when I leave here? Take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus tells us practically this is what it's going to look like when you're walking, when you're at work. I hope you recognize this. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's real long. It's called the Beatitudes. And that word just means blessings because Jesus spends the first part of his sermon talking about blessing. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. This isn't a list of philosophical statements that Jesus is saying. Like, it's good to be a humble person, a meek person. This isn't a list of to-dos, that if you try to meet as many of these as possible, when you get before the judgment seat in heaven, God says, okay, you did enough, you're in. Jesus is using plain language to tell you, if you want the blessing of peace, if you want to walk daily in peace, this is how you find it. The lived experiencing, a pattern your life after God's will is blessing. When we follow God, when we depend on his word, we find daily, moment by moment, blessing, peace. You recognize what's in each one of these concepts? Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. All of these are about relationships. And each one of them says, I'm blessed when I don't make this about me. When I turn it out and love the person next to me. Or when I turn it out and I love God more than myself. Jesus is saying, you want blessing? Pattern your life on loving others. Blessing comes when you turn yourself inside out. Because what happens then is my love goes out to you. Your love comes into me. Our relationship is enriched by the love of God. His glory fills up the in-between of you and me. And then when I'm hurting, then when I'm in a bad spot, I know I've got a source of God's love. When I can't feel it internally, when it's not coming to me naturally, uh, y'all, don't, y'all don't get to see it a lot. Brian Marbury and I give each other a really hard time all the time. But there, we, we, uh, it's, I don't, there's not even a signal. Like There's not uh, put out the coffee cup when you need to have a serious conversation, but he'll walk into my office, I'll walk into his, and we just know we need, like Brian needs to hear God's love from me today. Or I need to hear God's love from Brian today. And what a gift when it flows out of the other and fills me up. What a gift to be able to give that back, to have that relationship. And it only happens because we're chasing after God's way instead of our own. His love, your love, 
will carry me, give me peace when I'm hurting. This is what God intends for us. He intends for His love to carry us through pain. Now listen quickly as, as we talk about this. is not to say that those blessings will always equal the promotion that you want, or good health, or any of these earthly gifts. Not that God doesn't want to give us those things, but that's not His main intent. His intent is to give you love such that no matter what you get, whether it's good or bad, you will be carried through in His love. Not that you'll fight your way through or be able to gut it out, but that he will be carrying you. He might be carrying you in the arms of Brian Marbury, but he's carrying you. You are dependent on him. That is when we find blessing. Paul sets this up for this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Check this out. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. You're going to hurt. You're going to get caught up in trouble. But God's gift to you says, it's temporary. It's short term here because the gift I'm giving you never fades. Uh, we, Michael actually talked about this last week, this book, uh, but I just can't help but talk about it because I love it. It's called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, and it talks about this very picture. The, the plot of the story is a, a man is in hell, and he gets a bus ride along with some other people in hell to, up to heaven. And they can get off the bus and walk into heaven. But what they find is the bus lands on the, the eternally heaven, heavenly plane, and they get out, and instead of just being normal people, it turns out that really they're kind of ghosts. And the world that they've stepped into is actually much more real and glorious and heavy. And it's really hard to walk into there for them. Like every step is painful. The light is really bright. There are these people who are here and they're supposed to, I guess, guide us, but they keep telling us to put down these things we brought with us. And the people who are walking off the bus, some of them say, I, I don't want to put this down. This is really important to me. Forget this, I'm going back to the bus. And they head back to hell. Others of them try and they walk a little bit further in, but the glory's too much and it's too much trouble and they get halfway there and they're just like, I can't deal. This is just too hard. It's too scary. Change is too much. Going back to the bus. But for some of them, they see the beauty. They see the glory and they love what they see and they see that it is more than they had and so they trust their guide. And they take another step, even though it hurts, even though it's hard, even though they don't know exactly how it's going to work, they take another step. And step by step, they go further up and further in, and they become more real. They become part of the glory, part of the beauty. It fills them up. It transforms them into something new. It makes them what we long to be. It's, it's, it's an echo from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I hope you know this verse, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. God is transforming you. You're already saved. If you've, been, if you've committed your life to Christ by faith, you are justified. You are saved. But daily, this process called sanctification is happening. You are being made more and more real. You are being filled with his love and his glory. And it results in blessed relationship. Give and take with the people around you. That bond is strengthened by God's love day by day by day. And you experience real, daily, lived peace. But there's one more movement. And the fourth movement, this peace doesn't just stop here. It's going to spill out like a cup. It's going to overflow into the world around us. Take a look back at the last uh, couple of verses. Chapter 5, verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Stop there. God's intent is to bless you abundantly, over the top in ways you can't believe, but his blessings are not supposed to stay stuck in you. I'm not getting blessed so that I can go to the people around me and, look and say, look at how great I am, how righteous I am, how filled with God's peace I am. Ha ha, you still aren't. Of course not. It, does, it just doesn't make any sense. Instead, God says, I want this to pour out of you. You are a walking billboard, a living advertisement. Look how good the glory of God is in my life. It's changed me. It's made my life worth living. And it's for you too. No set of steak knives required. You can have it right now. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says the same thing to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. The Savior of the world comes through this man's family. And it's not because Abraham's great, but because God was pouring his blessings. Abraham and his family were a conduit, a spigot that got turned on. And the intent is to flood the world with the glory of Jesus Christ. Now it's you too. Your life is meant to be too full of peace and joy and hope and love such that the people around you couldn't ignore it. That you'd be so different that they'd say, what's going on with you, man? And you'd say, Jesus Christ transformed me into something new. And now when I hurt, when I'm caught in a terrible place, I have peace. And it's for you. So I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are in this journey. Maybe, maybe God has, has called out to you and you've just said, ah, it's not worth my time. And you don't have it. You've never put down the, the war. Can I, can I implore you? Surrender. Put down the fight and find peace. 
Maybe you've taken the first step and you've surrendered, but you don't always feel that peace. You don't always experience it. Ask God to open up your heart and show you. Just going to find places where you still need to surrender, where you take, need to take another step of faith so that God can transform you more. Or maybe you think of somebody in your life who's experiencing loss, coworker, family, friend, somebody who's hurting, caught up in chaos and in death. How can God pour his love and his peace through you into their lives? We're called to respond. We're going to take the next couple of minutes and we are going to respond. We're going to say to God, I'm not enough, you are. What's the circumstance you're in? What's the call he's making to you? Respond in this moment. Run towards his peace. Let's pray. God, what an amazing gift. New creation. Peace that lasts forever and overflows uncontrollably into the lives of those I love. What a blessing. So we claim it for ourselves. We grab hold with both hands and we're not letting go. But it's not for me, God. It's because I want to pour it out into the world around that you might be glorified to the ends of the earth. Wherever there's loneliness, hopelessness, war, abuse, addiction, I pray that this church would be full of individuals who are carrying the message of reconciliation directly to those places. That your light might shine in dark places and this world would be made new. So now we turn ourselves over to you, depend on you, and we come and worship. Amen. Y'all stand. However you're called to respond, respond. Respond.